Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at 7investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. Listeners, as you may recall, earlier this summer, my fellow 7investing advisor, Anirban Mahanti, Alex Morris, the creator of the Science of Hitting Research newsletter, and I reviewed seven former market darlings that had fallen and were down more than 50% from their all-time highs. In that episode, we looked at Block, Netflix, Okta, PayPal, Peloton, Spotify, and Upstart and judged those companies at whether they were wrecked or they were due for a rebound. Well, I've got good news. The gang is back together. And today, in a second round of Wreck or Rebound, we will be looking at seven different stocks that are also down significantly from their all-time highs. Like the markets, these companies have begun to climb from the depths of the holes they're in, but we will let you know with a higher degree of confidence than is probably warranted, whether these stocks are wrecked and and will not regain their all-time highs or will rebound to even higher highs in the future. The companies we'll be reviewing tonight are Airbnb, Cloudflare, Meta Platforms, Comcast, Shopify, Twilio, and Disney. Gentlemen, are you ready for round two of Wrecker Rebound? I'm ready. All right. Ready. So, we called we called the bottom last time, so it's, this can only go good from here, I'm sure. <laughs> it's bound to happen. <laughs> just like last time. So again, the companies we're going to be reviewing tonight are Airbnb, Comcast, Meta, uh, aka Facebook, uh, Walt Disney, Cloudflare, Shopify, and Twilio. But we're going to begin with Airbnb. Airbnb is now down 41% from its all-time highs. Its market cap, which had once soared to like almost $130 billion, is now down to $78 billion. Alex, is Airbnb a wreck or a rebound? Well, we should probably start by saying, for people who didn't see it, when CEO Brian Chesky on the day of the IPO went on Bloomberg and was being interviewed, and the, the woman who was interviewing told him what the opening price was going to be for the this, this stock, the look of shock on his face <laughs> to think that the stock could possibly open that high uh, was maybe a signal that it was a little bit hot. So it's it's probably not too surprising that it's, it's had a little bit of a rough stretch here. Um in terms of the business, though, I think I think they're really humming. And it's for me, honestly, it's one of the few names where I look back on the pandemic and think about, you know, the the roller coaster ride that the business and the stock have seen. It's it's one of those businesses where I think they actually really did improve and their position in terms of the markets that they compete in may actually be advantaged uh, coming out of the pandemic. So this chart shows the number of nights and experience booked over the past year through Airbnb. And as you can see in Q2 2022, the number was 359 million uh, room nights, which which is an all, all-time high for the business after going through some pretty significant pain throughout the pandemic. Uh, as some people may remember, um, April 2020, the business was down, I believe, 80% year over year. So they, they saw real, real pain during the heart of the pandemic. But now we're on the other side and, and things are you know getting back to all-time highs. Uh, next chart. Yeah, this chart just shows the average daily rates for Airbnb. So, so as you can see from the prior chart, you know, room nights at all-time highs, but they're only up about 10% from, from where they're at previously. The booking volume through the platform, the dollar booking volume or value is a significantly higher number, largely due to this chart, which shows the average daily rates. You've seen a significant increase 
uh, largely due to price appreciation, simply how much people are listing their homes for, and then and then things like mix shift with with markets like North America and the U.S. specifically coming back quicker than places like APAC, which was a lot of cross-border travel and is still recovering. So this has been a, a pretty significant tailwind for Airbnb's business because you know, it's a take rate business. They, they just take a cut of basically the booking value. So it's been a very nice tailwind. Uh, next chart, please. Yeah, this is this is one of the reasons why I think this business is, is more solidified and, and in a stronger competitive position going forward than they might've been pre-pandemic. What this shows is the percentage of, of long-term stays in the platform, which they, they, they define as anything uh, seven days or longer. And as you can see, uh, it, was, it was right around 50% of the business in the earlier days of the pandemic. Even today, 45% of, of stays were for seven days or longer, and uh, 19% were for 28 days or longer. And for me, this is just really important because as I think about you know, the consumer value proposition, you think about one, two, three night stays, you're, you really do compete with hotels for that type of trip. But when you get to seven, 10 or month long stays, it's it's kind of a different experience. And most people, or at least I would definitely argue that Airbnb has a bit of a consumer value differentiation and a competitive advantage in some of these markets where they compete with, you know, much smaller players like VRBO. Next chart. Yeah, and this really brings together how the business from a financial perspective has has really improved coming out of the pandemic. The company got some real religion on things like cost efficiency. They were able to they were able to able to test things like performance marketing, how much money do they actually need to spend to drive volumes on the platform. And what they what they learned as a result of the pandemic was that they could rely on their brand a lot more than they may have uh, assumed previously. So as you can see here, since pre-pandemic, adjusted EBIT margins have improved by 2,900 basis points. So just a complete change in terms of the financial profile here, which is part of the reason why I believe this, this company is very well positioned for the future. So, uh, Alex, I, I got to say, so as a like traveling with a family, the the value of staying at an Airbnb or, or, or Verbo is just it's so much better. It's such a better a such a much better experience than staying in a hotel, you know, like where you're all crammed into one room on two beds. Like, um, you know, me, I have a family of six. So we're either getting two hotel rooms, which is like yeah. definitely going to cost more than uh, getting an Airbnb, or we're going to like get one of those, like, you know, like, it's not like a, I'm not getting a deluxe suite, but I can get like a room with two beds and a pullout couch or something like that, you know, and it's, everybody's cramped in. Everybody's kind of miserable when you're going to bed. Um, you know, it's such a miserable experience. That being said, so I, I, I love staying at Airbnbs and Verbos. That being said, you still hear like these horror stories that kind of go viral, you know, or at least semi-viral on social media. Uh, and people, you know, you have other people say like, I'll never stay at an Airbnb. It's only hotels for me, you know, with a uniform experience, you know what to get. Like, do you think that's like a long-term, is that worrisome at all? Like long-term? Yeah, I think it is. I, I always make the comparison of, you know, if you look on Yelp and something has a good review and it's actually not a good experience, you can deal with that because it's a bad meal. You book a seven night stay somewhere and it's not what you thought you were going to get. That is a very bad thing for a brand if, that, if that's what you're going to experience. So Airbnb for a long time has had host guarantees because it was very important for getting people to be willing to list their homes on the platform. I think you see them more and more focusing their efforts on kind of consumer guarantees in terms of you make a booking, it's going to be what you got or what you thought you booked. And if not, we'll do everything we can can to ensure that you get 
basically something of comparable quality or value. So I think it's a big part of, of what they'll lean into going forward. You know, and the other part of this, which speaks to the kind of start of your comments is Airbnb is in such a unique position given both the size, but also, you know, the single source for a lot of their supply. They just have so many listings that are not on other platforms like VRBO. And we've really seen coming out of the pandemic, their ability to play this game of attracting supply and attracting demand and how those two components play off one of each other and features sure. like I'm flexible and, and category, some of the kind of product enhancements they've announced as, as of late really play into that, that value proposition and the growth of, of both sides of the platform. So they, they really have the flywheel spinning right now. And I think this management team deserves a lot of credit for, for where the position, the business is today. And you're I just had a quick thought? comment. Yeah. yeah, just a quick comment. Just that you know, we went on a longish trip to the UK and, and uh, or England and Scotland, and I only used actually Airbnb only once at Scotland, and the other places I actually landed up booking similar accommodation using Expedia or Booking.com because they have also started basically featuring similar mm-hmm. types. One thing that what I noticed is that if you are looking for like the the perfect like experience styled accommodation, you know, something unique, something in, you know, some location that another person is not going to think about, then I think Airbnb does have a significant edge because a lot of those properties are listed exclusively on Airbnb. But, in you know, when you're looking about city or city style, you know, like country club or, you know, golf club type of accommodation, those are actually now listed across multiple platforms. So do you think competitive pressures with platforms like Booking, which also have hotels, uh, and Expedia, mm-hmm. for example, uh, is an issue. Uh, probably not given those EBIT margins, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's it, this is. You know, it's funny. I, I in my first write up on the company, I, I kind of made some comment about how the S one had certain disclosure around KPIs like the number of hosts and the number of active listings and some other metrics that you could use to back into how many people are single hosts as opposed with, with one home. And they also would disclose how many are exclusive to their platform versus professional hosts that can and will list everywhere. And they've been more reticent to give that data out at least consistently. And I, for me, it's one of the most important KPIs, if not the most important KPI to know that when you go on Airbnb, it's going to have supply that's unique and that will not be found on other platforms. So if they live up to the needs of their host, especially the person who's listing it and making five, ten thousand dollars a year. It's not a full-time job, it's the side gig. That is what gives this business a, a business a sustainable competitive advantage. So they have to, they have to meet that need of their host. And I honestly think it speaks to, as I wrote about here recently, it speaks to some of the design decisions that they're making with the platform. So for example, if you go on Airbnb today, you can't sort you're listing by the number of reviews or the quality of the review, the star rating. And I think they've done this for a very purposeful reason, even though it somewhat hinders the guest experience, in my opinion. And I think the reason why they're doing it is because they're trying to grow that long tail supply. They don't want to hinder someone who is just listing a home for the first time from getting that first booking. So they've made a product design decision that this is worthwhile to do. And you know, like anything in business, it's a it's a risk, and we'll see how it pays off for them. All right. So next up will be Cloudflare, a nearby, a nearby. Cloudflare is sixty six percent, two thirds off its uh, one year all time high. It uh, its market cap 
is now 20, uh, let's call it $25 billion. At one time, it was close to $70 billion. Hmm. And Nearbond, is Cloudflare a record or a rebound? Well, you know, with the benefit, full benefit of hindsight, I mean, at like $70 billion, there was a lot priced into the business. And, uh, you know, while the business has actually continued to grow through the pandemic, it's been a very consistent grower, uh, you know, delivering that 50% plus revenue growth consistently through it hasn't been impacted by the pandemic. It, the scale or scale of the business as the business revenue base has grown, hasn't been impacted. But one could just say that, you know, it was just um, significantly, I guess, overpriced based on that. Um, you know, that 60, 70 billion or 70 billion market cap, right? At that point, market has basically, you know, seen an interest rate increase, which basically means the future profits have, you know, when you discount them, you're discounting them with a higher weight. Um, and, and that's probably impact, impacted its valuation. Um, in, in terms of like, you know, is it a rebound? Yes. I mean, the way I look at these charts is, you know, I ask my question, is it going, it's not whether or not it's going to go back to the previous highs or exceed that. The question I ask is, can it be a market beta from here on? And I, I do think that, you know, uh, Cloudflare can be a market beta, a significant market beta. It's a very innovative company. Uh, can you give me my next slide? Yeah, so like, you know, so one of the things with most of these software companies is if you look at their operating profit line, then this is this chart is actually from the Q1 2022, not the Q2 2022. I didn't want to make another chart, so uh, apologies for being a bit lazy, but you could make something similar uh, for the, the current. You'd notice that this had an operating profit of 2%. 2% operating profit on a business that's approaching a billion dollar revenue run rate, um, you know, it seems really tiny and, and suggests that, well, you know, are you going to ever make money? But the way I like, I like to think about this is, you know, look at the cost for goods. It's, you know, so it's a high margin business, it's 78% gross margin. Uh, so general and administrative expenses, about 15%, R&D is 19%. And the way I like to look at this is I look at the sales and marketing line and say, well, it's about 42%. Then most of these software businesses are land and expand. So they land a customer and then are able to sell more and more to the same customer base, right? So if you assume the sales and marketing roughly, and this is an assumption uh, that, you know, you're spending roughly say 21%, half and half for landing and half and half for expanding, then remember the landing does not give you profits or does not give you revenue right now. You know, the revenue and the profits from, you know, is going to come in due course. So if you just remove... The, the landing components is assume that you cut the sales and marketing piece in half, right? You could still get the expansion that's happening from the existing base. And, you know, this company has been able to expand its revenue about, you know, 25, 26% over last year, just from the existing customer base. So that's dollar-based net retention. So if you think about it, another way to think about these businesses is that these businesses can organically grow revenue at say 20, 25%, and have an operating margin around 24, 25%. That's pretty healthy, right? So the reason they are trying to expand a land is that they can continue having a larger and larger piece of the total you know, greenfield opportunity. So um, that's the way I like to think about software businesses. Inherently, these can be really, really profitable. And we can see that this is really, really profitable. Um, so I think now it's a good time to actually own Cloudflare. Uh, I've owned it through the highs. And you know, if the business continues executing on its promise of making the internet better, uh, it's going to be a much larger business than it is today, right? And yeah, and thanks for actually putting this chart out. This is another way of looking at the valuation. 
what I like to look here is this is just trailing um, sales and on the denominator. So, so not trading sales, trailing gross profit on the denominator. The reason I have this is some some businesses have a higher gross margin, some businesses have a lower gross margin. And on the on the on the numerator, we have the enterprise value. So you can just see, look at the black line, which is for Cloudflare. You know, at, it was 150 times uh, gross profit. Maybe that was time for me to should have taken some profits off. You know, but it's just these are things to which are good to do at at uh, in hindsight. Right? You know, at that time it's now, but you know this business can still double in five years. Should I, you know, take uh, some money off and then pay taxes, or should I just hold on, right? But which is just see how it was and uh, you know now the valuation has come back sort of to where it was when it IPO'd around that base level. Uh, there's another company we're going to talk about Twilio but you can see uh, that this one's multiple has actually completely compressed. Uh, so where, um, you know, uh, on a trailing basis, then the enterprise value for gross profit for Cloudflare sits at about 38, 39. It's actually bounced off from the, the lows because it had a good quarter. Uh, the second quarter was actually pretty solid. Uh, Twilio's is sitting at seven, which I think is down uh, downright cheap. But, you know, so I, I think, uh, you know, Cloudflare is an excellent company, an excellent CEO, doing really well. And yeah, Ron, right. So like, I'm not an expert on Cloudflare, but like, it's like this global network and it makes your like internet, like faster, more secure, more reliable. Um, but they live like at the edge of the internet. Right. And like, they're not like at the, I, I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but they're not like at the, you know, the center cloud, like infrastructure, like AWS or Azure, they're more on the edge towards the user. Does that yeah. so? My question about Cloudflare and like it was the same question with Fastly. That race to build like their, I don't know what you want to call it, but their centers, their uh, their network hubs, like out to the edge of the inter internet. Does that ever end? Like I, I just like if they just like, do they have to keep getting closer and closer and closer to the end user as more bandwidth of the internet is used up? Like, can they ever stop spending and like, I guess really scale this thing? Yeah, so the so number one thing is unlike the hyperscalers, right? So their capex is actually pretty low. Um, so uh, you know, if you are Google you, or even Amazon, you're spending a heap of money on capex and building these huge data centers and farms and things like that. Uh, this doesn't happen for a company like Cloudflare largely because they co-locate things with telcos. So really, the telco. Your, your, you know, your Comcast or AT&T or whoever, you, those guys are the last mile, right? So if you can co-locate your equipment with them, then, you know, you, you save a lot on the cost, right? Um, so can they, they're already pretty much everywhere. It's a question of how, and they use commodity hardware. There's, it's a question of how they expand the software along with the hardware, to run on the hardware to make it a better platform. So. Till date, they've been just doing things like DNS and application performance and bot uh, prevention and denial of service attack prevention, things like that. But if you want to actually turn it into a platform for store and compute, which is basically then trying to compete, compete to some extent with things like Amazon um, uh, Web Services and Azure and so on, then there's a different type of CapEx involved and there's a different type of software development involved. So that's what they're trying to do. Um, and the CapEx might grow. But... To answer your question, I think like it, if you think about just performance, then being closer, being in the last mile helps you with performance because it reduces latency. You can't really, you can't reduce the latency because 
that's the lowest you can get. That's the last mile, right? So being in the center doesn't help you. Being more centralized doesn't help you because you're not close to the last, you know, you have to still get to the last mile. Then only do you get to the user. So if you can be close to a user that you, you, you know, you can be more, you know, performance oriented. So it's important for certain applications. Um, yeah, so um, they're, they're not very expensive in terms of CapEx right now. But they're also not really doing a lot in that storage compute yet. So the question remains in my mind is what is going to happen in that storage compute? You know, everything else that they're doing, like uh, you know, zero trust and uh, you know, being a reverse proxy and then doing the denial of service attack prevention, those things are actually not that expensive in terms of, I guess, capex. I have a question on the. You know, just thinking about reflexivity and obviously stock prices being down a lot, we're hearing about, you know, in tech sector generally firings and things like that. And the, the margin profile chart you showed really laid out clearly, you know, it's not really representative probably of what the underlying profitability of the business is or could be. Have you seen management's kind of commentary around those type of things change? Are they more concerned with showing short-term profitability or is it a, you know, listen, our strategy's working, we're staying focused on the long-term, et cetera? They've been pretty. Oh, they seem to follow. They like to follow the Amazon, Amazon way of you know. We're not going to show you a profit as long as we can find a higher return on investment opportunity inside the business. So therefore, they're pretty clear that they are going to run around and break even. And in terms of like deals and so on, they haven't said anything in terms of slowdown. Although almost every software company has also hinted at well, you know. The macro is dead, and you know, you know, some people are concerned. Some industries are, you know, more concerned than others. Uh, but we haven't seen anything yet. But we want to be conservative. That's been the general language. And then in some cases, the deals have elongated. It's taking a little bit longer to get those deals done. Um, so yeah, nothing in terms of the macro, and nothing really in terms of you know they they seem to be pretty consistent in their in in the messaging that they have telegraphed to the market. So. And, and here, Ron, how, how big do you think Cloudflare can be one day? Like, what are we talking to market cap? Because I've seen some people say, like, like one day there's a future where it might be, like, even bigger than, like, AWS. Uh, so that, that that is the bull case, right? The bull case right. is that it replaces a lot of the stuff that happens. So I think one of the things that we don't – I think number of things we need to keep in mind, right? So if you think about – I'll just I use a different example. So if you think about, for example, you know, Amazon, right? Web services growing at what, 35% at that scale. And, uh, you know, something like uh, GCP or Google Cloud Computing, which is significantly smaller, still continues throwing dollars at it because they know that it is very early days, right? At the same time, these guys are basically saying, well, we can not just, we don't have to disrupt that, but we can disrupt the model of computing by saying that, well, you do a lot of those computations that need to happen closer to the user at our data centers, so to speak, or our POPs, points of presence, versus doing that, you know, um, uh, in the centralized cloud. And you still do use the centralized cloud for very data-heavy things, but, you know, you move some of the compute to these guys, right? Um, so if you think about it, the industry is still in very early stages of evolution. There's going to be a lot more evolution possible. Yeah, and it could be, you know, uh, something like a, an AWS uh, in, say, 10 years, right? Uh, can it get there? And it, it straddles a number of industries, right? So it, it's not, it's trying to get into storage and compute. It's in security or cybersecurity. It's in, uh, it's in network provisioning, right? So they do own pipes as well. 
of their own between. So they own some network pipes as well, or lease network pipes. And so they have a dedicated network of their own. So they do a lot of stuff that, you know, encompasses things from what a little bit of what Cisco would do, a little bit of what, you know, um, you know, Zscaler and, uh, you know, CrowdStrike and Palo Alto Network would do and a little bit of what Amazon is doing. So this, it spans a lot of different things. You could say that is their focus or not uh, could be a question. But yeah, I mean, if you execute to it, there's a lot of room here for growth. Excellent. All right. So next up is, is Meta Platforms, formerly known as Facebook. This company, uh, this stock is down 55% um, from a year ago. Its market cap, it was over a trillion dollars. It was close to one, you know, 1.1, 1.2 trillion dollars. Um, it is now under 500 million dollars, just down to like 470 billion dollars. And where where to begin with this company that I've owned for uh, going on about eight years now? Where to begin? So many problems. But let's start with like, <laughs> let's start with how much money they're spending, right? So like, this is just like um, their, their, their capital expenditures, um, you know, just over the last year, how much they've grown from the second quarter in 2021 to the second quarter of this year, you know, it was up to 77 uh, billion dollars, uh, you know, year to date now uh, on CapEx, just CapEx, you know, uh, you know, they spent $13.2 billion. Meanwhile, their their headcount is exploding. Um, so like, can this can this cycle ever end? And, you know, I, I guess where I'd start is saying like um, Zuckerberg on the last call was saying like he, he was kind of walking back the ramp up in CapEx, uh, like a quick quote. From the conference call, uh, Zuckerberg goes, I discussed that based on the revenue growth we were seeing in 2021, we kicked off a number of multi-year projects to accelerate our business. And I still believe these projects are important, but given the more recent revenue trajectory that we're seeing, we are slowing the pace of these investments and pushing some expenses that would have come in the next year or two off to a somewhat longer timeline. Now, like, look, so like the, the one thing I'll say is Zuckerberg has a very long-term vision. Like he doesn't care about like a particular quarter's results. And sometimes I find that frustrating, but overall that's actually what I really like about Zuckerberg. He has a vision and he's running to like where he thinks the puck is going to be in five years and 10 years, not where the puck is now. Um, he says they're going to be steadily reducing the headcount over the next year. And he goes, I expect us to get more done with fewer resources. So let's, let's hope he's right. <laughs> and, and, and sticks to that. Um, so, like, the monthly active people on Facebook has not uh, – and this is their family of apps, right? So we're including Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger ha – has now grown to $3.65 billion uh, – 3, $3.65 billion users. Uh, and so, like, you know, you, you minus China from the world. And, I mean, we have basically saturated our markets. We're not going to see much growth here. What I find incredibly encouraging is, like, this has not decreased. Um, and I think that's almost remarkable with how many negative headlines they face and with how everything else um, that they're they're going through like this, this number has not come down. Um, so right now, uh, and some of the things that I like about this is that we're seeing engagement, like there's a lot of encouraging signs with engagement. And I think one of those reasons, and this is kind of controversial with what they're doing, but I actually like it. Uh, right now, about 15% of a content and a person's Facebook feed uh, and more than that, in an Instagram feed 
is recommended by like Facebook's AI um, and not based on just their social network. Um, and Reels is a big reason why. Uh, Reels makes up now more than 25% of the time users spend on Instagram. And it's reached a $1 billion annual revenue runway. Um, that's, that's to me, is pretty impressive. I will say this personally. Um, I don't have TikTok on my phone. And I only had an Instagram account to monitor my son's account. And like, and my daughter got an account. So I just got on to, to monitor them. And now I, I go through reels like I do. And it sucks you in. And it's like, I can see why, um, like, like it, people engage with it. Um, there's a lot of problems with Facebook and we can live like the macro economy, the, like the supply chain crunch, which is like hurting e-commerce. Meanwhile, you have e-commerce normalizing from the rates it saw during the pandemic. You know, Meta is under the microscope of regulatory agencies. Like, you know, they wanted to buy like a, a, a simple little VR meditation app and the FTC comes in and blocks it. You know, meanwhile, Microsoft is buying like $70 billion acquisition of Activision and that looks like it's going to go through. Um, Facebook has to, you know, they have to monetize their content. Uh, this is important because like the feed is like just extremely like uh, extremely profitable for them. And it's more profitable. You, it's easier to monetize the feed than stories. And it's easier to monetize stories than reels. So the way content is evolving and going, uh, it's getting harder and harder for Facebook to monetize that. And of course, last but not least, we have Apple's iOS changes. So it has all these headwinds. Uh, it has to go through. Uh, the only thing I can say, like if engagement stays steady, if users stay steady, I think Zuckerberg's going to figure it out. I mean, you know, they have a lot of optionality with this business. You have WhatsApp payments that, you know, is, is I think it's going to take off in India. Um, you have social commerce. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with the metaverse. I have no idea. It could be a big flop. That being said, I still think they have a lot of optionality. They're building out their AI. And if, as long as users and engagement stay steady, I think they're going to be basically okay and recover from this um i know both of you guys have strong opinions on this so i'm just going to turn it over to you guys i'll start with a question for you and it's a question okay. i have myself and a, a big part of the the q1 call was this idea of we're going to take a balanced approach obviously we're starting from a somewhat unbalanced place with 10 billion dollars in losses but that's in frl but that's kind of the starting point. And we're going to have this trade-off between FRL losses and FOA growth, such that overall operating profits for the company grow. Well, we've very shortly seen how in a tough macro environment, FOA doesn't, it's not by decree that they have to grow. <laughs> and right, FOA is right, under right, a bit right. of pressure. Do you think if this sustains itself for even another three months, six months in terms of tough macro, do you think we'll see meaningful change in terms of how they, how they think about the FRL spend, or do you think they'll say, listen, we, we meant this in terms of a multi-year horizon. We're not going to change our plans just for the sake of living up to that kind of framework. All right. So, so two things I'll say, and I don't know if they're like crutches or if they're legitimate. So you, you push back on me, but like, what I would say is like one, like, I, I do think Zuckerberg has a long-term vision, like say what you want about Zuckerberg, but like, um, uh, you know, like the, the greats, who I consider the greats, right? Like you can go to Bezos or, you know, a, a number of Bill Gates, um, Steve Jobs, like they have long-term visions, right? So they're not, 
they're not they're going to see through like these what you could call temporary headwinds so for a lot of those i mean you know I, I went through that laundry list of like headwinds facebook is facing i think a lot of them are temporary some of them are longer lasting and more worrisome for sure though um but like a lot of them are temporary and like zuckerberg's going to see through that now i think like he'll he'll see the data more and and, and what he determines is from ios which is might be longer term what he sees like from competition like tiktok which could be longer term what he sees is like just this I mean, I'm not trying to get political, but just like, like very intense scrutiny from regulatory agencies more than seemingly other big tech companies face. Um, you know, those things are, to me, are more worrisome in longer term. And I'm sure he knows it. So how much you determine these headwinds are from like the shorter term problems to the longer term, I think will dictate that. But I think Zuckerberg's not going to worry about three to six months slowdown, e-commerce normalizing from the pandemic, uh, a recession, things like that. The other thing too, I'll say is like, I think it's like steering a ship, right? So that like the spending like is determined before the quarter begins, right? And then the quarter goes how it goes. Um, so the spending, like even if they're trying to like match, roughly match it to the the profits that the family of apps generates, it's still going to like, there's going to be a lagging factor um, th that's just going to be like, you know, inherent to that strategy. And so that's how I, you know, so, so one, like this was the first quarter, right? After they said it, and it was like an eventful quarter. So um, I would say like we, as investors or shareholders, I'm going to be more patient with that because I think there's just a nat natural lagging factor to it. And, and two, um, again, I think Zuckerberg, I'm hoping uh, anyways, and, and I think he will like discount the short-term headwinds completely and take into much more account what could be longer term headwinds. Hey, a point I probably should have added there in the question, which I, I think is relevant to the extent we're saying this is kind of the macro driven part of that short term headwind. This company remains in a financial position that is, I mean, pristine, <laughs> even, right. even with the business right. facing yeah. pressure in terms of year over year right. results, balance sheet, cash flow statements still, look fair. even with the massive CapEx growth, there's still very significant free cash generation here. They have, I mean, especially when you can't do M and A, they have they have all the capital that they could possibly need. One hundred percent. But it'll, it'll just be interesting to watch that in terms of how much they're, how much pain they're willing to take in terms of market perception. Which is, I mean, it's a real thing. I think it's partly what led to what was said on the Q one call and, and the Q two call. To your point, right? And, and finally, and and then Nirvana, I'll turn it over to you. But like, and finally, and we didn't, we haven't talked about this, but the valuation's not too demanding right here, right? So. Um, you know, so like to me, I, I do think it's going to rebound. Um, now, of course, the trailing PE ratio, you know, whatever you want to go by, it looks a lot better than what the Ford PE ratio looks like because earnings are being cut and that's going to happen for a few more quarters. So I, I get that. I'm just saying like th the starting point of its valuation is not too demanding. It's in a, it's in the position where it is able to invest in the future. This isn't, um, an unprofitable company by any means. It's balance sheet is pristine. They have had missteps and a near run. I'm sure you'll bring up like their, their, their buybacks, you know, like that were ill-timed, let's say, but um, you know, like longer term, um, you know, I think Alex, you and I both think this is going to be a rebound and near though. What, what, what are well, your thoughts? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think I agree with some of them. Uh, I think that, you know, the valuation is undemanding if you assume that it, it can get, so I, it can get back 
and on its feet. I, to me, this you know, I like to call this the, sort of the Yahoo of this um, of this generation. <laughs> and and the, la- the reason I call it that is, I think it's a terrible place to be a big business with no ownership of platform. Like it owns platforms that run on other people's platforms. And that means you're always susceptible to the changes, right? And changes, you're susceptible to what's happening in the underlying space. Um, and, and part of that, you know, so that, that just makes growing harder. Um, you brought back buybacks. So I think, so for all the people that you mentioned, right? I mean, Zuckerberg's capital allocation skills of whoever was doing capital allocation for him really is bad <laughs> because they bought a lot more shares at their peak. Now, I, I think I know what was happening. So they were basically looking, their buybacks sort of looked like, to me at least, looks like a function of free cash flow. And as the free cash flow basically dwindled, uh, they had to, uh, you know, step down their buybacks, which sort of doesn't give me the confidence to say that, well, you know, if you really believe in your business, this is the time you should be like, you know, lapping and buying. Um, but, you know, they're doing buybacks proportional to their um, uh, to their free cash flow. So that, that bothers me. The, I think it's insanely mad. Now, okay, I'll rephrase that. I, I, think, I, I think they're spending on... Um, on metaverse is 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 at a maddening level, uh, as Tony Fadell, one of the co-creators of iPhone and iPad, basically said, the amount of money they're spending in one quarter, Apple did not spend that much to generate to produce both the iPhone and the iPod. So sometimes, actually, I think what 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 I think at a fundamental level. I call Google and Facebook as companies that are engineering focused from being an engineering company to becoming a design company to producing something that is going to be consumed, used by a lot of consumers, consumer facing is extremely hard. It's, it's not that you can't hire people, but you just don't have the DNA in your company to actually do that. That results in all this spending that is just, you know, flagrant spending of money. Money doesn't buy that. Is is my uh, is my argument? the The final thing I'll say on metaverse and and everything else that they're trying to do is, you know, they seem to be laser focused on Apple that they want. You know, they want trying to compete with Apple, but they forget that Apple is going to produce the first first version of the product that's going to have mass acceptance, and then Google is very quickly going to copy it. Where is it going to leave them in that space, right? Because you can't assume that Alphabet is just going to let, you know, Apple have the metaverse space or VR, AR space to itself. It's not going to be like that, right? It's been a duopoly and, and a fast follower is always, is, is, is very quick to follow through. So I think the, the final thing that I worry about with this, this company is as sort of the consumption patterns and as the usage patterns of social media changes, there's nothing that says, like, I mean, TikTok basically came from nowhere, right? There's nothing that says that something else doesn't come from anywhere and, you know, usurps the position that is occupied by Facebook and, um, you know, Instagram and so on, right? And I think, I think switching, actually, this, I think, is a fundamental mistake, in my opinion. But again, I don't know much. I'm sure Zuckerberg is, of course, smarter than me. But the fundamental mistake, I think, is going from, from a social aspect to a completely AI-driven, feed-driven driven approach basically takes away that social element, right? So one of the reasons for having strong network effects is negated by using an AI to just feed in, you know, feed in stuff that is current today, trendy today, may not be trendy tomorrow, which means you're, de- you're depending a lot more on the algorithm doing a lot of the heavy lifting um, for, for keeping around. 
So I, I don't know. I, I think that there, there's some strong headwinds there for this company. Um, I would say that the right strategy, in my opinion, would be to actually cut back a lot on the spending. They don't need to do that kind of capex and R and D spending. You know, they can just half that. And if they did that and focus their R and D efforts and actually bought back stock, I think that would that that would make me actually a lot more bullish. Then, you know, right now it seems there are a lot of arrows and darts trying to find the bullseye. Instead, you know, just need to pick a few things and then hope that one of them uh, is is going to deliver. But, anyways, that's my position. Yeah, I'll be, I got, I, there's a lot there. I have uh, one comment that comes to mind for me, and it's as, as I think about FRL, you know, a lot of this, from what I've seen and what I've, I've, I've followed with this company, a lot of it has been kind of the underlying technology, and, and a lot of it has really been on the hardware side, it seems. And now, now we're getting to the Horizon Worlds launch and an ability to see whether or not this this company can generate any traction for, you know, something that could at least in theory be, you know, a Roblox type of experience at least. And obviously Roblox isn't a hardware company. They're just purely the platform. And I'll be curious to see one, how the adoption goes and two, how they respond to, to that uh, outcome. It'll, it'll be an interesting test for, to your point and a point that I think Matt and I both probably agree with, at some point, the numbers have to be justified. And what are we spending for and how long does it take to get there? Um, a hard part for this has always been if if we're talking five, 10 years down the road and you're starting at 10 and the number's going higher and higher and higher, that can be dangerous, especially if you have questions about the core business. So this is an early test in my mind to see how they respond, especially if they get an adverse outcome, how they respond and, and what that says about their ability to balance the vision here with the realities of what they're seeing. I think I agree with that. I, I think that is, I guess my biggest, one of my biggest concerns, uh, there, there's, there's many, but like one of my biggest concerns is like Facebook is like, or Zuckerberg is just so determined to like make this happen. Like he would be willing to go down with the ship, you know, like what there was like a quote uh, several months ago, like, uh, you know, in, in a publication that was like, you know, Zuckerberg sees this as his iPhone moment, you know, or something like that for, and, and if the, the metaverse, he sees the metaverse as his iPhone moment for, you know, and if that's the case, like, uh, like that almost scares me, you know, like if he's willing to just like keep pouring money into this after it's shown, if, you know, if, if it can't gain traction and things like that, that that's what would really scare me. Um, to, the only other thing I'll, I'll, I'll end with this, like, I think that recommending like reels with AI and like, you know, user social graph is like better than just AI. And Facebook has that in like, you know, I, I think that's um, because nobody on my, nobody I know that on Instagram makes reels. Right. I mean, you know, so it's nothing, not, none of those reels would come up. if it's just my social graph. So they almost have to use AI and it's, it's very effective. Like I see right now why like TikTok is so catchy and, you know, it's like that brain candy. Right. Um, uh, but having that social graph, like, Oh, I send the cute animal videos to my daughter. I send the star Wars uh, parody videos to my son. I send like whatever videos to my wife, you know, like having that social graph input on top of its AI that it, or that its AI can use, I think it's just like powerful and like an advantage TikTok doesn't have. And like, I'm not, yes, TikTok came out of nowhere and another thing could come up out of nowhere either. But like, as we saw, like it, 
the users haven't gone down at Facebook and engagement trends look, look good. So I'm not worried too much about competitors coming in and just usurping Facebook. Um, yeah, I think I, I just add on that point real quick too, because I think it's incredibly important, this, this idea of demographics and who the users actually are. And this conversation in my mind is frequently framed in terms of very simplistically U.S. teenager type of, of view, which is relevant, and, but it, it kind of misses the broader point, as Matt put so well. You know, the user base, even in the U.S., even just for Facebook and Messenger, not even the family, has it's, it's at or near all-time highs. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. As you said, you've owned this stock for a very long time. I've owned it for, I think, four years now. The concerns around the user base and engagement have been prevalent since before I bought the stock. And, you know, at least up until this point, some of the data leads you to believe that that conclusion uh, is at least partly incorrect. But obviously that is that is not black or white. There, there's 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 no question that they've lost some mind share to, to TikTok and 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 other Internet properties, in my opinion. All right. So we we should probably move on. Uh, so our next stock that we're going to look at is. Comcast. Comcast is down not as much as some of our other stocks we've looked at, but it's still down 38%. Um, and and that, that's a lot for what like I think would be like a should be like a stable, you know, kind of recurring revenue business model. Um, its market cap is now $170 billion. At one time it was over 280, um, $280 billion. So Alex, is Comcast a record rebound? Sure. Well, let's just jump right into the first chart because I could probably frame this discussion uh, in the appropriate way. Uh, this is this shows the trailing 24-month uh, internet customers, basically, for Comcast and uh, the other large player in the U.S. market, Charter. And as you can see, you know, coming into the pandemic, they were both adding, you know, let's call it two and a half to three million uh, net subscribers every two years. Uh, during the pandemic, they saw a major tailwind. That number jumped up by about a million subscribers. Now you can see today, you know, Comcast for the trailing 24 months is, is kind of back to where they were pre-pandemic, maybe a little bit higher and, and charters a little bit lower. But so I, I think there's a part of this story that is a pandemic tailwind and then hangover on the back end, which is always always isn't a you know easy thing to kind of quantify in a single quarter or a single year. Um, but on top of that, what we're seeing now and, and this chart, that the, the numbers on the tail end are, are much worse than in some of the earlier periods that are captured. Um, the growth rates have effectively gone to zero and management points to a couple things, one of which is a meaningful decline in uh, mover churn and new household formation, which is, you know, obviously these are, these are ways that they, they add new customers as, as management for both companies likes to say, you know, they win more of those jump balls than they lose. So it's a way for them to take incremental share and add customers. So when people stop moving or stop, you know, building new homes, that that is a major headwind for their business. The other not- notable development that's happened um, is, is fixed wireless competition and, and fiber as well. But fiber has been around for a while and it's it's been, I would say, a fairly manageable and, and more of a steady competitive factor. Uh, fixed wireless is, is more of a newer development, particularly in terms of T-Mobile's recent success in the space. And, you know, I think that's it's it's tough to frame. I wrote an article about this recently. It's it's tough to totally frame what that looks like a few years down the road. I think as one of the charts coming up will show, there, there's going to be questions about 
the capacity of their network to handle a big influx of internet users, as well as the attractiveness of that customer relative to a wireless customer. So T-Mobile, if they're capacity constrained, will have to make basically a choice between the two. And the wireless customer is a much more preferential customer. So they're, they're going to have some decisions to make there, but uh, the point still remains that if, if a new competitor enters the space, that is a headwind to growth stats. Uh, next slide. So partly what's happening here is Comcast and Charter through their MVNO agreement with Verizon have basically moved into the wireless business. And they've had decent success today with both uh, exceeding 4 million lines now. And this is really where the industry is kind of going, in my opinion. It's a convergence between kind of the wired and the wireless networks. And if someone like T-Mobile can be successful with fixed wireless, which is a home internet product, the question, I guess, becomes who will win in the fight towards convergence or is there another development that gets the industry to a kind of cleaner structure? Um, so it's obviously going to be very important to watch, but Comcast and Charter are, are going full steam ahead on their wireless businesses. Next slide. Yeah, this just shows what I said before, basically a huge discrepancy between uh, you know, a mobile user and a, and a kind of fixed internet customer user in terms of data consumption. And if you're T-Mobile running things on the same network effectively, uh, it's, it's much more, you know, it uses up a lot more of your capacity. Next slide. Yeah, this final chart just shows the trailing 12-month net cash flows for Comcast cable business, the, you know, the, the internet business and pay TV business. As you can see, it was you know, a low uh, 11 or $12 billion in net cash flow per year a handful of years ago, five years ago, and today it's closer to $20 billion. So you know, the underlying results in the core business have, have been fairly strong, obviously going forward is what matters. But uh, you've, seen, you've seen a major... Uh, divergence between the company's stock price and and the underlying profitability of its cable business, which is the most important business. NBCU is very important as well, and there's things to discuss with Peacock, but uh, this is you know this is the real driver. I have a question, like I mean, you know, like so the, all the charts going from the left to right, going up, right? I mean, it, <laughs> it, it looks like nothing is wrong with this business; everything is just fine and. Uh, so is it a question, I guess my, I'll just rephrase, um, I'll ask my question differently. Do you think the, the business was just, you know, had become uh, had become overpriced in some sense, gotten ahead of itself in terms of the valuation during the pandemic and now sort of has reset? I can't see anything wrong with it. Like, I mean, everything seems going the right way. Yeah, I think that the, the t- translating that to the business part, I do, the question will be, is this just the hangover? From the pandemic in terms of the, the gross ads and the net ads how how big is the contribution from mover churn how big is the contribution from you know fixed wireless competition how much if this is just normalization after you know we've seen this with other businesses like netflix the normalization doesn't have to happen in a single quarter or a single year it can take some time to to shake out so i think that's a big part of it and i also think more so to the stock price i think a lot of people have questions about what the strategy is at NBCU, for example, and how that rationalization in, in the media industry, what role Comcast will play there. And, you know, I think very interestingly, one, they announced the JV with Charter for basically called the Xfinity video business in terms of now trying to be a real competitor to Roku. They're years late to the, to the game, but they're trying to be a real competitor in a way that they weren't previously. And they did it through a JV, which I think is noteworthy. The other noteworthy development is there was speculation or at least reports that 
there were discussions between MB and NBCU and EA about a possible deal. So I think it's becoming a bit clearer that management is not dead set on holding the hand that they currently have, and they may be open to some ideas if they come along. So uh, the market doesn't seem to be too convinced by that, but I, I think it may be pretty interesting time to, uh, I mean, I own the company, but it may be an interesting time to consider buying more. So that last, so like with cable, Alex, like, yeah. And I know like the cash flow is still rising, but there are, there are people cutting the wire out there, right? Like cutting the cord. Um, eventually, I mean, they, can, they can only raise that price so much, right. To keep getting to squeak, you know, to keep squeezing like more water from that rock, I guess, you know, like, I mean, like how, how much juice is left there. And like, because eventually I, and I think that's got to, I think that's like a huge overhang over the business and why I just, I just have my doubts about it because I think we've all experienced like streaming is just like, that's how we watch TV now, except for like news or, or sports or, or things like that. I mean, you know, I'm not going back to watching a, you know, a two hour movie in a four hour block on TNT, you know, like, um, sure. like I'm just, it, that's gone. Um, sure. So I, I guess so like be- how, yeah. Like where, where are we at? To be clear, that that what I show there, that's the cable segment. So that includes the video business. It also includes, obviously, fixed telephony for anybody who still has a fixed phone in their house. <laughs> and, it, and it also includes the internet business. So right. what's really happened here, and it, this is part of the evolution, at least during the time I've owned it, cord cutting was a big concern. The pay TV business decline was a big concern. And what's really happened here is these guys have effectively become indifferent to that development because the content suppliers, the media companies have basically taken any part of the economics that these guys had in that business by pushing so much price. So Comcast and Charter, I mean, Comcast more explicitly than Charter says this, but they're they're indifferent to whether or not someone wants to keep the pay TV package, at least in terms of profitability. Obviously, it has some some implications in terms of a bundled customer and churn and things like that. But from a financial perspective, I, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I believe the last time I looked, my estimate based on what I saw from their financial statements was that an internet customer likely generated 10 to 20x the amount of EBITDA versus a live video a pay TV customer. So it's not it's not a meaningful driver of their profitability I, at this point. I don't point. think I re- recognized that this disparity between the two was so great. But there is a question that I think is still relevant. What impact does it potentially have if people are becoming single single play customers with a single offering from you? Does that impact churn? Does it impact your ability from a competitive perspective? And that, that in my opinion, is part of the reason why they're so much more focused on wireless than they were previously. This is their new bundle. This is this is where they want to play. And you know, I think they start from a pretty strong position and they don't have some of the some of the constraints that the telcos might have things like, you know, very significant financial leverage and, or, you know, high dividend payout ratios. Um, so that they they start from a good spot, but this will take some really effective maneuvering and potentially, you know, strategic in terms of inorganic uh, potentially a merger or, you know, some other activity like that. So it'll be very interesting to watch. Are they, are they at risk like of being disrupted by like 5g and I know that's not close. I'm not saying in the next couple of years, but I'm saying like in the next 10 years, like if if 5G is so prevalent, like, can I just get like a, you know, a wireless plug, a wireless fire TV plug into my TV yeah. from Amazon and uh, get and stream whatever I want from that wirelessly, you know, without having to have like a, you know, a cable run to my home so I can run Wi-Fi. 
And this is effectively what T-Mobile's doing. And I, I think when you dig into it, what you find is it's, it's certainly a, or it can be a competitive product, particularly in places where there's not a lot of competition. You don't have fiber in the cable companies going at each other's throats sure. to try to win business. It's obviously more competitive in places that have less, you know, less built out solutions. A big question is going to be, and it's, it's why that chart about data usage is so important. If you're running wireless customers and home wireless products off the same network and the home wireless customers are using 10x, 20x more, you know, call it capacity or data, and you're charging them $25 or $50 a month for the home internet product and you're charging your average wireless line $40 or $50 a month, obviously your revenue per unit is much, much, much lower for that home internet product. And, you know, to the extent that there are capacity constraints, you either have to build out more network and justify the ROI, or you have to choose between those two customers. And I think T-Mobile, if you listen to the way that they talk about this business, it's it's pretty evident that they ended up with a lot of significant excess capacity as a result of the merger with Sprint. And, they can effectively justify going after this business because it's a sunk cost for a lot of this and they have no other foreseeable use for that capacity. The question will become at some point, if you do use that capacity, does it make sense to put the dollars in to build out more? And I think it's very unclear to me that the answer to that is yes, especially relative to a core wireless customer. Now where where they may be able to justify it, and I think this is where this goes over time, is bundling that with their highest tier wireless product. And then they can look at it as a a relationship and think about the churn dynamics and pricing ability in that context. So I think that's probably how they find their own way to a convergence strategy that kind of looks similar to what the cable companies are doing. So I think the strategies could be similar, but I think cable starts from a somewhat better place. And the MVNO with Verizon is a major reason why. And Nirvan, any thoughts or anything else? Or I have nothing to add, nothing to ask. All right, excellent. All right, so the next company that we will be covering, Record Rebound, is Shopify. This stock, this, I mean, was like one of the biggest market darlings, I think, during COVID, right, pandemic. I mean, in 2020, this was at a 56 times sales, not 56 times earnings, 56 times sales. It is now down 78%. Uh, in the last year, its market cap, which was once over $200 billion, is now under $50 billion. So this company has taken a precipitous fall. Um, and I think what we can do is like, we can go back to like, right when um, uh, the last conference call, when like uh, Harley Finkelstein, like the COO got on and he goes, it's time for some real talk. And he goes, basically, Shopify made some large strategic bets that like um, that the new normal from the pandemic or the e-commerce spike we saw from the pandemic was was the new normal. And that e-commerce like was like had taken like a like instead of staying on that long trend line up that you see here, like it had spiked up and like it was permanently going to be that high and not and not come down like to where that trend line is. Well. He goes, he basically said, they, we got that wrong. Like we, that, that did not come true. And they said they're going to lay off people. Like I think 10% of its workforce. Um, and uh, like the stock has, has tumbled from that. I don't think if you're at this point, if you're a Shopify shareholder and, and I am, I have a small position, 
uh, that it's time to panic. Um, it's still one of the largest U.S. retail uh, e-commerce, you know, collectively, its merchants like represent like it, it would be the second largest e-commerce platform in, in the world um, or in the U.S., I'm sorry, like just in second to Amazon, in a distant second, but they're still ahead of everyone else. They're ahead of Walmart, they're out of eBay, they're ahead of, of everyone else out there. So it's still a dominant player in the e-commerce uh, space. Revenue this last quarter was up 16%. Uh, merchant solutions was up 18%. That was driven by like a solid uptake of Shopify payments, Shopify capital and Shopify markets. Like if you follow this company, like those are like the usual suspects. I mean, this company is still doing a lot right. Um, the problem they're having and, and the problem they're going to continue to have is like right to build out like the logistics and fulfillment. Um, they want to get to like two guaranteed two-day delivery. They think if they can get there, um, that will be good enough for the U.S. consumer. Like that's, or, you know, that's that's their bet. Um, that if they can get to two-day delivery, like that'll be good enough. Now, of course, Amazon, like, I mean, what I order things on Amazon now, like 80, 90% of the time, I think I get it within 24 hours. Like, I don't think, like, it's very rare now for me to wait two days. Um, so I don't know if that is going to hold true or if U.S. consumers' preference are going to like rise as Amazon delivers better uh, capabilities and like even like Walmart, like if you order something from Walmart or Target or Home Depot, you can usually just go pick it up in the store, uh, you know, pretty, 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 pretty quickly. But Shopify's betting um, that if they get to two day delivery, like a two day delivery guarantee everywhere, like that'll be good enough. They're doing that. They bought to deliver with a uh, $2.1 billion acquisition in July, uh, deliver, it already fulfills more than 1 million orders per month. It's asset light, it's technology driven. And basically it like predicts consumer demand. So that merchant inventory is like in the right fulfillment centers before customers order, right? And then it's, it also uh, announced a new partnership uh, with Flexport. And that's so merchants can more like easily and, and cost-effectively inbound freight. Um, so like it enables merchants to like ship inventory at the pallet level versus container level. And uh, that that allows them to like be a lot more nimble and ch to, to changing buyer trends. It frees up a lot of their excess capital. And it said like early runs, like they said this in the conference call, conference call, that early runs have shown that Shopify fulfillment network merchants can expect service from origin ports up to 50% faster, like with this partnership. Um, so they're, they're very bullish on that. Um, and they still have like um, their ecosystem is still their biggest advantage, right? Like if you want to build out an online business and like a very large established businesses have turned to them, um, they have quite the ecosystem. Uh, they have more than 8,000 apps that you can use uh, to build your business. They have more than 40,000 uh, ecosystem partners. Um, and, and that's like a huge network effect because like, you know, if you're a developer and you want to like develop these types of apps, you're, where you're, or where are you going? You're going to Shopify because that's where the merchants are. So it's a, I actually think that's a, like a, a great network effect for them. Um, again, so like they're, they were at 56 times sales in, in 2020, uh, which was just like, you know, like a nearby when you were talking about Cloudflare, like, you know, that valuation was just way ahead of where Shopify was. That being said, you're at nine times sales now. Um, you're still at like very high EBITDA ratios, um, the value, but I think you know, this is one of those things where I think they can like leverage. And once they reach that scale, like the profits will go up very quickly.
I believe. Um, so at this point, like, uh, and like I said, I actually, I, I, I did all right by Shopify. I did trim near the top, um, you know, which is kind of what I want to do with a, with a core position. I, I want to get better at that, like adding when it's low and maybe taking a little off, at least when it's high. Um, the valuation was way ahead of itself, but now it's much more reasonable. I, I don't think this is time to panic with Shopify. That being said, the one thing I'll say is like the biggest threat I think that's facing them is buy with Prime. And buy with Prime is like if you're a third party merchant and you can offer this payment method uh, to, to your customers and if they choose it. So if they're Prime members, they can choose it and pay with their Prime credentials, basically. You will, th that merchant will experience the benefits of Amazon Prime uh, logistics. So if I'm a merchant and I'm on Shopify, right? And I, you know, and, and I have Shopify Pay set up and so they can, customers can select different payment options through Shopify Pay. That's great. But if I have buy with Prime, like I can get my product to the customer and probably in less than 24 hours. Whereas if I'm going to Shopify, they're just trying to get to two-day delivery and they're not there yet. And they, they probably have a good ways to go where they can get that across the board. So, and as Shopify gets, I mean, as Amazon has more and more same day deliveries and I've begun to see that, like I had a quarter like khaki socks for work the other day and I ordered it in the morning as I like put on socks with holes in it. And by the time I got home from work, like I had my new socks, it was like, it blows my mind. Um, but, uh, you know, so as Amazon builds that out, like I, I don't know, it, merchants might have to offer that um, just as a competitive offering. So Amazon could be the Shopify killer. I don't think it will be. I'll say this. I'm a shareholder of both. My position in Amazon is multitudes, multitudes higher in allocation than Shopify. Shopify is a, a pretty small position. Amazon is one of my two largest positions. So they, they have that existential threat from Amazon. But I, I, I think from this level, I'm bullish on Shopify. Can I, uh, I have a, uh, so I have a different view on Shopify. So I, I actually don't think of Amazon as a competitor at all. Um, because I think of the market positioning in a slightly different way. So like Amazon is great if you want uh, to come to a marketplace. Amazon, I look at more as a marketplace, right? You've got all the customers and you bring on, you know, and you can choose your product. But if you want to, if, you, if you're a brand, for example, and you want to have control on your brand, then you're better off being with Shopify, right? Because you don't have to worry about Amazon, you know, taking your content and plagiarizing it to it, uh, or not plagiarizing, but, you know, coming, coming up with an Amazon basics product that looks like yours, um, you know, a copycat of yours at a fraction of the price and things like that, right? So if you want more control, you go to Shopify. If you want you know, quick sales and, uh, you know, access to a large uh, user base, um, all of those beautiful things that come with that. Then you go to Amazon. And then for certain things, maybe it doesn't matter whether it's like, you know, two days versus, like, say so if I want my toothpaste quickly, but I might be willing to wait for a designer pants longer because, um, you know, that's what it is, right? Um, I agree with that. So, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a very orthogonal positioning is possible. One supports, and the, I think the biggest trump card Shopify has got that they don't compete with their customers, right? Whereas Amazon does, which has been Amazon's thing for everything that they do is that they compete with their customers uh, to, to, to some extent. So I think, you know, to me, it looks like it's very orthogonal, like what they're servicing. And I think Shopify's move to go up market is the right move, right? To, 
you know, go up market in terms of the, the customers you serve, larger and larger. You know, they started with the SMBs, but I think, you know, there they have, I guess, the promise of being, you know, in control, offering you the best experience, you know, ensuring that you don't compete with your smaller customers. But I think going upscale, where, uh, you know, more direct to consumer, more brand control. I think that's going to become more important, especially with, you know, um, you know, the tracking things, changes that are happening, cookies disappearing, but a lot of companies would want to have um, a direct to consumer relationship that is more tight. Um, so I think there's a, there's a world in which both can actually live and, and they should be fine. Yeah. So real quick, and then Alex, I'll let you have the floor, but like, I do, I, that's what I do agree with that. Like, I think like I can wait two days for my designer pants, but if I need toothpaste because I'm out in the morning, I need it that night. I want it the same day. So I, I agree with that premise. Um, I think, but I don't know, like, that's a theory I have. Like, I don't know if it's right. And I do think buy with prime, like, yes, Amazon, I agree with your distinction between Amazon and Shopify, but I think buy with prime is different. And because it's offered to third party merchants, like, I think that's like a direct, like, taking aim at Shopify 100%. Alex has, I mean, look, I've, I've followed Amazon pretty closely, largely in terms of on, on the e-commerce side, in terms of their spending for shipping costs. And it even despite the significant ramp in revenues, obviously the shipping costs have increased from, it was 800 basis points, something like that 10 years ago, it's 1700 basis points. It's increased very significantly. So kind of to that point, has management commented commented on this idea of two day being good enough, or is the ultimate vision to try to get to parity, which obviously would suggest no, years and years and years of capex? They're not getting. They're not going to parity, at least not and, now. Like they're they're they their goal, uh, which they are still, I think, you know, not not even that close to. But their goal, I think, is two day delivery. Actually, I I like Toby. The CEO of Shopify, I think he's fantastic. I don't think he's perfect. And I think when the stock was so high, like I wish they had made like a, I mean, they just bought Deliver with cash after their stock had fallen for, for $2 billion. That's something. But when their stock was so high, I wish they had gone after like XPO or, you know, I think Scott Galloway threw out the idea like Shopify should buy FedEx or UPS. I would have, lo- I actually think I would have loved to see that. I think that would actually would have worked. Um uh, you know, in using their stock. Well, because it was like, you know, when it was so richly valued, like that's the time, you know, I feel like to uh, to use your stock for an acqu- a big acquisition like that. Um, but they're just looking to get to two days. They're, I, I, I think at this point, and my thesis on Amazon is that no one can match them on logistics and that Amazon is just like that. The, and the mode just being, you know, space dedicated to distribution and the money they put in. I mean, it's, it's the, to me, that is the moat, but uh, yeah, they're not yeah. looking to get to parity. Yeah. Can I, I can ask a quick, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, just a quick question. So do you know how much of that, um, you know, uh, like prime delivery is uh, sort of spending on last mile, like basically drivers, trucks and things like that versus distribution space. It's a lot. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I'm not off the top. Yeah, I've just seen a break. I think they yeah. show shipping expenses. The other thing that they don't do, by the way, that I should add to that comment earlier about the cost is Amazon used to more clearly show the shipping revenue side as well. And obviously, you know, you're paying for that to some extent with Prime, and they, they've they've changed the way they kind of report that. So it's not a perfectly clean metric. 
Just to add one more comment, I think like one of one of the things that we shouldn't discount, I think now, is in the next five years, the logistics of delivery could completely change and everybody could deliver, deliver like, you know, next day because you might have autonomous driving and you might have robots doing the delivery. So, you know, these advantages might actually disappear because the advantages might accrue to some other other right. technology change. But so that was just, what, but, it's basic, not, but it's not just last mile because the square foot... The square feet that Amazon has dedicated to distribution dwarfs, dwarfs like anything, like dwarfs what Walmart has, dwarfs what Target has, dwarfs what anyone else has. And now I will say like as a caveat to that, it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison because who's to say how much of a Walmart store could be dedicated to that, you know, square feet wise or a Target store could be dedicated to that. But but it's still, it's so... the. the like I had it, um, I had it on my last write-up on Amazon. Like the, the disparity between Amazon and anyone else with the just the square feet, finding the real estate that Amazon has, like I would be. So it's not just last mile. It's like having these distribute the the immense amount of square feet they have dedicated to it. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, you know, that's probably insurmountable in, to some extent, right? Unless you convert that's stores to yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, like again, like I mean, yeah, I'm not hundred percent convinced that that is like a big deal for a different audience. Like I mean, you know, like I mean, again, it matters for toothpaste and things like that. Uh, it doesn't matter for certain things. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know whether the head-to-head comparison is. And, and the other thing I think that is important in this discussion is that you know, e-commerce is still what twenty percent of the total, you know possibility and that space is still growing so there's you know there's room for different types of e-commerce to continue growing allowing for all these companies to actually grow i don't know yeah no i agree it's a fascinating name it's interesting to something that i've only watched from afar but it's it's been the last two years or however long it's been it's funny how I mean, many companies have done this, but sure. the roller coaster ride you go on in terms of stock price, somewhat business results, and then obviously narrative. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to see, kind of for me at least, kind of for the first time in real time as an investor. Yeah, I agree. Same, same, same with me. It's uh, it's it's been like the it's it, Shopify's been on a crazy ride, and uh, but at this point, if you own shares, uh, this isn't the time to give up on it. You know, like when it was. 60 times sales two years ago, maybe, maybe then is when you should have taken off some off the table. But I think Shopify is well. How do you, how do you think about it from here on that point? Cause I think about it at names like that I own, like Spotify, very close name. Uh, how do you think about it from here in terms of kind of, you know, the story feels like it's changed to some extent, this, but this happens all the time. How do you think about what you're looking for from them as you look out to the next quarter, the next so, year, whatever I mean, it may be? Like my theory is what Nirvan said. Like, I don't think you, I, I think just knowing, just looking at myself, right? I think two day delivery is basically fine for a lot of items, especially discretionary items. Like, 100% agree with like a Nirvan, um, which is why, you know, I, I have Shopify. I think the tools they can offer merchants are second to none with the exception of logistics, which Amazon has. So that, that is, that still comes back. That's like, that's the, um, you know, that's, that's my one hole in my thesis that I'm not sure I can definitively answer. And so it's enough for me, I guess that's where it comes to like portfolio allocation, where like Shopify is a, it's a yeah. small position and Amazon is a much larger position because I'm, I'm bullish on Shopify from here, especially. 
And look, and I said I trimmed at the top. I trimmed a little at the top, right? But like I still hold most of my shares, right? It, it, um, so I don't I don't want to say like I like I chopped it significantly or, or down to nothing. Like I didn't get it that right, you know. Like I, I got I took some off, which I'm glad I did. I, you know, obviously in retrospect, I wish I had taken more off, you know. Um, but uh, but I'm bullish on it. Like I, I think they're they're very well situated. The ecosystem they have with the third parties offering apps and tools like, like, you know, Wix or anyone else, like any other platform like this really can't compare with the exception of logistics, which Amazon has. Yeah. I've watched this. I don't know if I just said this a moment ago, but I've watched this as someone who's followed Walmart for a long time and I've watched them try to compete in e-commerce and it's been, I think Doug McMillan's a great CEO. And I think the strategy they've ran has, has, been pretty intelligent given where they started from and what assets they had. And you look at the PL and you see just how difficult it's been to get to the position that you should on that chart, which is, you know, one seventh of Amazon's market share in the US or whatever. I mean, it's right. It, it's very difficult to compete with someone like that who's really running, unless to a near bonds point, you find a way to compete with them that is not on their <laughs> right. And Nearbond, any last word? Well, I'm like, you know, for all the comments I made, I'm, I'm like you, like, you know, Shopify is a smaller allocation versus uh, Amazon. I mean, the other thing with Amazon is Amazon is, you know, it's a multiple multitude of different things, right? I mean, it's not just a e-commerce business. It's got AWS as well. It's a pretty significant component. So, um, yeah, but, but I like Shopify at this current prices. And, and I agree with all those other comments. You know, everyone should have bought things that they wanted to buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In retrospect, it's a lot price. easier, you know? Like in retrospect, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's when you should have sold. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Our next stock that we're going to look at for record rebound is Twilio. All right. And Twilio is down 78% from its high a year ago. It's market cap which was once over 60 billion, like, you know, approaching 70 billion. It's now down to under 15 billion. And nearby, is Twilio a wreck or a rebound? Yeah, like I actually really like Twilio at especially the current uh, valuation. I, you know, we just, I showed you that chart, uh, shared the chart when we were looking at uh, Cloudflare, right? If you just think about enterprise value to gross profits, then it's, it's eight times gross profit, which is relatively uh, cheap. Um, I think Twilio's had, so, you know, this chart in the sense is that, you know, the, the peak that they had during the pandemic, they had a lot of things working for them. You know, for example, a lot of people were sending messages, uh, you know, which is one of the things that these guys specialize in. Uh, you know, a lot of one-time passwords being sent, you know, a lot of things happening digitally. So they had that, that huge boost in their messaging business, um, you know, and then of course now what's happening is that they're lapping those really, really strong numbers. So that makes it really hard. If you go to the next chart, I mean, I think that, you know, the next chart has it, yeah. So if you just look at this organic revenue trend, right? I mean, you know, like if you did Q2 of 22, which is the last number on your right, that's basically comparing with Q2 of uh, 21, you know, they were up 50% in, in that quarter. That was on top of a 43% growth the prior year, right? So, I mean, you know, the numbers are becoming bigger and they had a much larger um, uh, base on which they had to grow. So the growth rate has fallen, which is, you know, and the market doesn't like when the growth rate falls. 
That's one, but I think the growth rates are falling largely because they had really tough compares. Um, and as this graph shows, the Q3 and Q4 of 21, the, I think the compares become easier. Um, that said, I think part of the problem with this company has been it's not been profitable, right? And if you just go to the next chart, and, and that probably explains this. Uh, oh, I moved this one. Uh, I should go back to the previous chart. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, and the previous one. Um, Yes. Okay. So if you look at this uh, graph for a second, this is a business on what a $3.4 billion roughly run rate. Um, you know, it's a $3.4, $3.5 billion run rate. The gross profit on this is about roughly 50%-ish. So it's about 1.7, 1.8 billion is the gross profit. Now, if you go back, if you skip the next chart to the next chart, I think this, you know, yeah, this basically explains their problem. So this is a business generating 1.7, 1.8 billion dollars of gross profit. It start, still can't print a profit <laughs> on an operating basis, right? And that gets really annoying, right? If you can't do it at, at that scale, when are you actually going to do it? And that's what the market is basically, I think, telling them is like, look, you know, Great, you know, you've, you've got a big business, it's really, you know, big and you're still growing at say 30%, um, you know, why aren't you generating profit? Now this, you know, one could say on an operating basis, this is pretty close. Like, I mean, if you remove that accrual, then you're looking at a roughly break even, but you know, I'd expect a lot more for a business that has that much gross profit that they're generating at this point. So uh, one of the things that one needs to think about is this is a typical, sometimes it's an issue with founder-run businesses is that they want to grow their empire where the empire equals uh, revenue, <laughs> but doesn't necessarily mean profit, <laughs> right? And uh, and I think the market's way of saying is, ah, you know, we want to see profits. So these guys have guided for exiting 2023 with an operating profit, right? Not an operating profit margin and things. So the guide is for generating a profit and maybe, if I think Jeff uh, Lawson sees what the market is saying, saying that, you know, at, at this scale, you should be profitable, um, then things will turn. I, I mean, I, otherwise, you know, this is a business at that scale growing at roughly 30% organically. That's pretty good. Um, it's still in opening a large market. It's got this opportunity of, it's got two, roughly two segments, a software segment and a messaging business. The messaging business is the larger business, lower gross margin. Uh, it actually is growing really quickly, which is part of their problem. They have a business which has lower gross profits growing really quickly and a smaller software business, which is also growing really quickly, but it's really small. Um, but, you know, so then, and, and the last thing I'll say is there's been, I would say, a bit of an inconsistency at the management level. This is another problem. You know, you'd see that a lot of the companies that, you know, so Meta is an example of this, that get beaten down is that there's a lot of churn happening at the management level. There's a lot of strategy changes keep happening at the management level. And, you know, and that is always a problem because then you don't really know what's going on. So one of the things that they, you know, they have previously said that they're happy to take the lower gross margin um, uh, uh, messaging business if, if, you know, because it adds gross profit dollars, which, you know, if you add gross profit dollars, that's good for the business. And then you can cycle that to somewhere else. That's one. And the second part is that, well, that's always a door. So if you're thinking of landing and expanding, the messaging business could be the land and then you expand into software. Now, of course, that doesn't help you get quicker, quickly to the profitability um, equation. So now they're saying that, well, you know, we want to switch a little bit of our focus. So they're not hiring 
in the messaging side where they're hiring and the software side, so they've reduced the pace of hiring. Um, again, they've had a few changes at the, you know, the CEO. So the George Hu, who was the CEO, he left after he left. They had put somebody else in charge as, uh, you know, uh, as as a chief revenue officer. That person was then, I guess, left. Then they've got a new. They they promoted the CFO to CEO and hired somebody else as president of revenue. So this is this this constant. Uh, revolving door at the top, which is not, so the, all of those things are, sh- you know, showing. So this is, I think, fundamentally a good business that has some directionality issue um, that I think they can't message it and they can't really get their hands, heads around as to what direction they want to take. But if they can hit the profitability guidance that they have hit or, or suggest that they're going to hit in 2023 and sort of focus on growing the software business. I think this is actually a really, really good value, right? But I'm not saying that there's a lot of conviction. My conviction has sort of reduced a bit on this business because not because of the share price, but largely because, you know, I don't like these conflicting messages <laughs> that I hear from management. And I don't like the fact that you can't generate a profit on that gross pro- gross dollars, gross profit dollars. So if I see the profit and I see the, you know, some traction on the software side, then I'll be much happier. I still own the stock. Sure. So you said they're, they might get the profit, they might get the profitability next year. Yeah, so they're very close, right? They're already pretty close to break even. They had they lost seven million dollars last in Q two. They're saying they're gonna lose like twenty million in Q three. So they're pretty close. They're saying that they're gonna get to profitability in twenty twenty three. Like, will that? How quickly will that ramp? Like, like are they? Like, what do they see as their long term operating margins? Well, well, so that's a great question. So, like, look, just like I showed the chart for. for Cloudflare, right, you could sort of look at the sales and the biggest chunk of any of these software companies is sales and marketing, right? But then you look at the, you know, the dollar, you know, dollar-based net expansion, that's 120% plus. So there's like 20% extra revenue generation happening from your current customer base that you have retained, right? So they could very quickly become a lot more profitable. I mean, fundamentally, they're profitable if you think about the chart I showed you and that little drawing, this scribble that I did. But and and then you can see your operating margins really quickly ramp if you don't um, spend as much as you're spending on sales and marketing. That's number one. Number two is um, their long-term target. So they said their gross margins are significantly lower than a typical software business. A typical software business has 80% plus gross margin. This has about 55% gross margin, 54% gross margin. Somewhere in the 52, 54, they want to get to 60%, right? That also adds, but what has happened in the recent quarters is that the gross margins have actually gone backwards instead of going forward because I think their their messaging business is growing at a much faster pace uh, because I think strategically they have been growing that side uh, or they made the decision in the past that they were happy to grow that side and you know they probably now realize oh well that doesn't help us get to profitability because we're just our our Capital investment is focused on that, whereas we should probably focus our capital investment on, or you know, when I say capital investment, I mean dollars spent on sales and marketing, and you know, customer support and customer experience and so on. So yeah, this this I think this would not be as high margin as say Cloudflare, but it should you know you could think of a fifteen percent operating margin in you know three years. Uh, fifteen percent should be doable given the scale that they have, right? This is pretty, you know, not many businesses have that kind of scale and they still grow, 
you know, 1.8 billion and growing 30%. And I'm talking gross profit, not, not about, um, you know, just revenue. So, yeah, but. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, it, 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 it's similar to Cloudflare in some ways in the way you discussed it. And going back to Amazon, something they experienced a lot in the, you know, early 2000 or early mid 2000s. It's, it's just interesting to watch these companies where, and especially when you start talking about a lot of stock-based comp, how narratives and and earning the trust of your shareholders is just becomes so important. And it's, it's so different than, at least for me, when I started out in investing, you're just, hey, be long-term and short-term stuff doesn't really matter. And, and then you see how for the people operating these businesses, it's not really that simple. And you have to think about these things and they actually do matter. And it's, I just find it fascinating to watch these things. And I'll be, I'll be curious to see what, what their kind of trajectory looks like here over the next year or two. Yeah. So Alex, you hit the right, you know, so SBC is a problem for all of these businesses. And as the stock price yeah. goes down, the SBC becomes a headwind. Um, so that's something to definitely keep an eye on. And, you know, ultimately you want to be free cash flow positive, right? And you want to use that to grow your business and have, you know, my, my threshold is like, you know, you don't want to have more than a percent dilution in a growth business um, or on a, on a fully diluted basis, right? If you're doing, if you're diluting by 5% every year, <laughs> that business is not going to generate, you know, it's very difficult for that business to generate market reading returns for you because then now you have to generate like in excess of that, right? So 1% maybe is okay, 1% or under, but yeah. So something is there a Is there a larger tech company that you think of as someone who would be potentially interested in buying Twilio or is it kind of unique and doesn't really fit in anywhere very well? Well, like, I mean, so the one company, so, so, so I think this company is interesting to backtrack for a number of reasons. I think this direct-to-consumer is a real trend. I think there's this shift happening. So where, where, where you know, you needed to be in a platform and advertise and track. And if you switch that, it's very expensive to actually acquire, reacquire and reacquire the same customer. So if you want to switch back and actually control the customers, that you've got and then sell to them again and again. That's a really interesting proposition. So that's, you know, basically, you know, having customer data platform. So in that, in that sense, they would, the most appropriate company where they would fit is Salesforce, which is very acquisitive, uh-huh. right? Then this company's origin is Salesforce. <laughs> so in fact, uh, mm-hmm. Salesforce venture, that's I believe right. was one, of the, yeah. And, and these guys, uh, you know, the, the founders worked at Salesforce. <laughs> So, you know, the Salesforce is, is the, is, is the mothership to say, but I feel like every would, founder has worked at Salesforce. Like, I, just, well, like, like, <laughs> I call it the Silicon Valley tree. There is Apple, Steve Jobs at Apple. Then there is Benioff. And then there's all these things <laughs> that have spawned from uh, the Benioff tree. Um, but I think there's an issue though. I think the appetite for mergers and acquisitions is going down, I would say, as the cost of capital goes up, right? Um, you know, and Salesforce has just made like, you know, I think the largest one that they did was Slack, which I'm, I'm sure they're repenting. They should have just waited for the pandemic <laughs> for Slack's shares price to be, have been cut by God knows how much and they could have paid peanuts to buy it, right? So I think that's, you know, I would say that's the likely suitor. Um, you know, maybe Microsoft, the other company that has shown a lot of uh, appetite for acquisitions is Microsoft. So maybe Microsoft, it fits in there. Um, you know, maybe even Google, um, they've got a lot of free cash that they don't know what to do with. Uh, and they have an appetite for big acquisitions. 
All right, Jen, yeah. to, to keep this from being any more of a marathon, let's just move on. One more company, uh, and that will be Disney. Disney now, over the over the, you know, from three years ago, uh, from be, before the pandemic, it is still down 40%. And that was after a huge dip during COVID, then a fast rise back up, uh, you know, when like uh, Disney Plus like uh, took the headline. And then, but now it's still back down to uh, like negative 39%. The market cap for Disney is now 223 billion. You know, at its height, it was uh, 325 billion or so. Uh, Alex, is Disney a wreck or a rebound? Let's just jump to the first slide so I can frame the conversation appropriately. So this shows the direct to consumer run rate revenues for Disney in relation to the content cost for the direct-to-consumer businesses. And as you can see, basically the run rate gap now is about $5 billion. Uh, you know, the gap's kind of been in that range for over a year now, but Disney's still in the somewhat early stages of, of ramping its content spend and, you know, supporting its D2C businesses. And a, a big part of driving D2C revenues is subscriber growth, which has been the primary lever that Disney has pulled so far. Um, what we're seeing now is that the company is going to start uh, driving pricing a lot more aggressively. So, you know, they're they're following, in my opinion, something that looks similar to the Netflix playbook, obviously on a much more condensed time frame. But I think they're they're showing you how this can become a large and potentially very profitable business over time. Uh, next chart. Yeah, this is a breakdown of the paid subscribers by by market. Basically, the Disney Plus Hotstar is prominent service in countries like India, um, decent number of subscribers, but very low ARPUs, typically under a under dollar. Uh, the core Disney Plus product, obviously, it's a, it's a larger subscriber base, but, but more importantly, a much higher ARPU. So, you know, it just, just breaks down between the two because they, they basically should be viewed as, as different uh, business opportunities, at least in the short term. Next slide. Yeah, these are the, the ARPUs by month in, uh, for well, Hulu and ESPN Plus are, are U.S. properties, basically, and and that's the Disney Plus Global ARPU. So as you can see, the ARPUs are still pretty low, especially for Disney Plus, and uh, ESPN Plus is still finding its footing as well in terms of its role in the business. And, you know, you're going to see significant changes on, on the standalone ARPUs for these offerings. Um, I think Disney's strategy is pretty clearly, at least in a market like the U.S., to drive as many people as possible to its bundle and to try to replicate a lot of its its strengths across these different content genres to to build something that at the end of the day looks somewhat similar to what their strategy was in pay TV, but granted it can be, it can be global in a way that, that they weren't previously, or at least not to the extent that, that they can be now. Next slide. Yeah. And this is just a breakdown of the, you know, kind of the overall subscriber basis. It's pretty fascinating that in you know, Disney Plus launched in November 2019, and in less than three years, they're at 152 million paid subs, granted at a much lower blended ARPU than what Netflix is at, but Netflix globally is at 220 million after uh, 15 years. So Disney's had a lot of success in this space, at least early on, on the subscriber front. Um, in my mind, they're they're very clearly the, the entrant that's had the most success so far, but now they need to they need to figure out the other part of the playbook, which is really driving ARPUs and driving revenues. And, and Netflix has played that game very well and be very important for Disney as they as they move forward to, to do that as well. I don't know if they have another slide or not. 
Yeah, this just shows the overall industry, and it kind of brings that last point home. This is looking at D2C businesses for a few of the major players. You can see that Netflix run rate D2C revenues globally are north of $30 billion, with about half of that from international. Uh, Disney's closer to $15 billion when you back out Hulu Live, which is their uh, VMBPD. It's just like a live TV product, basically, so it's not really comparable in terms of D2C. So this has that backed out. They're at about $15 billion. Warner Brothers Discovery is at about 10 billion and, and Paramount's at about 5 billion. So in terms of scale being a relevant metric in this business, which I think it likely will be, um, it's an important and on a global basis as well. Um, you know, Netflix is a very clear lead and Disney's covered a lot of ground in the last two years, but there's a lot of work left to be done. So I think it's still a very messy story overall. It's 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 very helpful that. It's very helpful that Linear is still contributing significant profitability to the company. It's also very helpful that parks have rebounded in a major way. And some of the kind of strategic tweaks that they've made to the business have really have really showed up in terms of uh, kind of the financial results. So it's a company that as the world can, I should probably show up the other chart I have with the Nielsen data for viewership streaming was 35% of overall TV time last month in the United States. And it's, it's jumped about, 10 percentage points in the past year or so. Um, so, you know, this market's moving to streaming and, and part of the question is as we, as we make that transition, how do you play the hand you have and how do you invest for the future? And in my mind, Disney with the, with ESPN and its other assets is, is very well positioned to make that change. And I probably should note on that point, Dan Loeb at third, third point has, has been, well, he bought the stock previously, then he sold it. Now he's back in again, and he's kind of pushing for changes. And one of his proposed changes is spinning off ESPN. And I think it's a very, it would be a massive strategic change. Um, it would be a massive financial change for the company to do it. I think it's something, in my mind, I think it might actually be the exact wrong decision, particularly as, ESP, as Disney overall is navigating this next call it five, 10 year period of structural decline and pay TV and, and finding their path forward in the, in the next, in the new world. But um, we'll see whether or not management is willing to, to let his voice have any impact on their decision-making. So um, I'm a shareholder and yeah, I, I, I basically agree with everything you said. I, I, I don't disagree with much. Do you do you think uh, the new CEO though, Shapek? Do you think he is the? I guess my biggest question now is about him. Um, you know, I think the company misses Iger, and and I think he almost like he stayed so long that he drove off other maybe more competent leaders. And in the meantime, now we, we have Shapek, and I don't know, like I don't know how deep Disney's bench is for someone to come in and like take over all of it um and i guess that's my biggest concern like do you how important is like the leader like during this transition um i kind of think it's more important than normal like i don't think disney's ip yeah. isn't going anywhere you know things like that so normally during quote unquote normal times like i don't think the the ceo is as important but during this huge transition time i think it is more important and i'm wondering if they just have the wrong guy at the wrong time yeah, I think on the first point, you know, for all the accolades Iger deserves, particularly for the acquisitions that the company did, which are hugely, hugely important to where they sit today in terms of their streaming assets. Um, 
those accolades should be couched in terms of what he did to the C-suite and how delaying his resignation multiple times was very disruptive for the company. And after he left, you know, having oh, his yeah, com- yeah, for sure. For having sure. Yep. having his comments be shared publicly was also disruptive to the company and yeah, not don't do that. It, not for the best of the Walt Disney Corporation. Um, you know, Chapik, I think, was dealt a very tough hand in a lot of ways and navigated through, you know, obviously the pandemic was very disruptive to the parks business and the parks business is back in a very good place. And, you know, D2C has also done very well and that's not directly attributable to him necessarily. But, you know, I think the most important thing for him to do from my perspective is to ensure that people like Kevin Feige at Marvel and, you know, the content creation engines are positioned to, make the investments that they need to make and, you know, have the proper time horizons and just be thinking about the long-term health of the business. If he does that well, I think the company is in a position that even if he isn't the the greatest CEO of all time, he can make the asset base work. Nirbhan, any thoughts? No, you stole the question I was going to ask. So yeah, like, I mean, basically big shoes to fill is the, is the issue. Um, yeah. The, the I guess one of the things that I think this is a Disney advantage versus not you know like Netflix basically has a single you know basically has to spend on content that gets distributed on Netflix right and they have to produce a lot of content to basically keep people glued to the seat. One of the IP advantages, um, aside from the IP advantage that Disney has, I mean Disney produces content for the theater. And then it can monetize it through the theme park, through the theater, through streaming. Then it can monetize it through like, you know, um, <laughs> different real in kind of make Lion King 10 times and make a Lion King for the TV. So I think that's the, you know, so they're multiple bang for their buck. I think which plays them in a really sweet spot, right? I mean, I don't know. I think. Yeah. 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 I wrote it one, I wrote it one time as what Disney Disney's ability to replicate Netflix is easier than Netflix's ability to replicate Disney. And I think that's, I think a lot of that's still true today. That said, you know, you do have the risk of, as people have often discussed, Marvel fatigue, superhero fatigue, you know, Star Wars has been good in some, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a massive fan, but has been good in some ways. And there's been a lot of complaints in other ways. And especially as you start thinking about, you know, the Nielsen chart showed up earlier, Disney Plus's viewership share in the U.S. is pretty low, and that partly speaks to the nature of their content. But I think they also try to plug that hole by having multiple series and multiple movies from these franchises. And the thing that always has to be kept in mind is ensuring that you're not hurting those franchises by increasing the the output of those those content creation engines. So it's a, it's a difficult balance, but yeah, there's definitely fantastic assets to have. And it speaks to how they've had so much success so quickly. Yeah. There, there's something to that. Like I was actually just talking to my son the other day, we're my household, pretty much Marvel fans, uh, Star Wars fans um, all the way through. Um, but I was talking to my son, um, my oldest son, and, and we were like, you know, since Endgame, you know, Avengers Endgame, like four years ago now, like we were saying, like what what Avenger movies were, or Marvel movies were really like must see, you know, are really great. And it's it used to be like I mean they went on a run where it was like every you know like it seemed like seven or eight in a row that were just amazing, right? Like and um, through Endgame, and then it was like oh the Spider Man movies were really good, yeah, but those aren't owned by Disney, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the others like are just 
okay, you know, and, and not great. We still go see them. We still watch them all. Um, but like, uh, you know, you can feel your, your love for their franchise is kind of dying down. And the other thing too is, and like, you know, let's, if we can go back in time a little bit to go through this transition now with their balance sheet weakened from that huge Fox acquisition a few years ago. Like, I think do you, how, I guess like Alex, in your opinion, like how was that acquisition necessary um, given like the state of their balance sheet since then? Or, or do you think like it was a, a necessary move? Here, there's two important things in the Fox study that always have to be kept in mind. One is, you know, some of the monetization that took place as the deal was basically closing or right after it closed in terms of the RSNs and then the stake in Sky. The other important point is Star and the assets they now have in India, and that was directly attributable to the Fox. And then the third one is, which I think this is important in light of, you know, the Disney Nielsen data I was talking about a moment ago, they now have majority control of Hulu they're eventually going to own all of Hulu once this arrangement with Comcast finally comes to an end. It gave them content creation engines like like FX, which is very and and Nat Geo, which is you know different than especially FX is different than kind of their core audience that they serve. So if you're thinking about this in terms of these eventually being consolidated or at a minimum bundled as they are now and serving everybody in the household. They pretty clearly had a blank spot in terms of doing that, that I think FX goes a long way towards helping. Um, you know, to the to the first point you were making, I, I often think back to, you know, Berkshire owned Disney as a result of the Cap City deals and Cap City's deal in the late 90s. And like Nearbon said a moment ago about re- remaking these movies like Lion King and everything. You know, I think Disney went through a very difficult period where their content creation engines didn't have the oomph that they did previously. And I've often wondered whether or not that was kind of a key reason that Iger, I mean, that uh, Buffett ultimately decided to sell the stock. And again, Iger came in and did Pixar and Marvel and uh, Lucasfilm. But, you know, think about what this company has outside of those assets. And it just speaks to, it's very difficult to keep that going. And it has to be such a core focus of the company. And when super fans are saying things like you are, that is very concerning. <laughs> so it's, it's something to continue to keep an eye on. I mean, the box office data up until recently, or even up till now has continued to be very, very, very strong, but that brand equity is, is paramount. Sure. And Nirvan, any thoughts? No, I have nothing to add. All right. So if you've been watching on YouTube or if you've been listening, if you watch on YouTube, you'll see that we went through a lot of these companies uh, with our friends, with our help of our friends at Y Charts. And there's also some like beautiful charts that were thrown in for some of these companies. Alex, is there a newsletter where maybe we could see more of those kinds of charts? Yeah. If you check out the TSOH Investment Research Service, Science of Hitting Investment Research Service, uh, you can you can see all my charts there. And obviously I include write-ups with those as well. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter if you want to see just random charts that have no explanation. <laughs> I can attest it's uh it's an excellent service. I subscribe. I'm very happy. I read every everything that you put out. Um, it's a great newsletter. Thank you. Uh, and I think that that wraps it up, gentlemen. Thank you so much for for joining me. I'm Matthew Cochran. We're Seven Investing, and we're here to help uh, to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day.
A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.